Hello, everybody. It's Neptisistardis, episode 14. How you been? Been a little while. Got a couple things to continue on from last episode. We're going to be continuing on with our heavy support choices. Going to be answering some listener questions. And going to be finishing up our series on Zach's pile of opportunities. Finally, the long-awaited finale? Finale. Finale is the word we're going to use. All right, we're just going to get right into it with some listener questions. So this is a good one submitted through email. Reminder, if you're listening, that you can send emails to me at ineptisistardis30k at gmail.com, and I will get to your questions, answer them on the show when I can. Um, This one is a question about building units, and in particular, this person was talking about um, command squads and what to kit them out with and how how much to spend. But in general, there was an interesting question, basically, said, how much is too many points to spend on one specific unit? Sometimes when I kit out certain things or I try to figure out what I want to put into it, all of a sudden the cost has ballooned and I'm looking at something that is four or 500 points. Is that unfeasible in a standard game? So there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, and a lot of it comes down to the way you want to design your squads or whatever else. Let's just take a look at that point value. Let's just let's just look at the 500 points to start with. In a 3,000 point game, 500 points is roughly a sixth of your um, of your whole army in one place. It doesn't necessarily mean that's too many points because a lot of times you can something can be 500 points and be quite durable, quite effective. Anytime you have a squad that is going to contain your HQ choice, your warlord, the cost of that warlord plus whatever they're in is going to end up, you know, contributing a fair amount of points. So let's say you take even a standard squad of uh, terminators or um, medium to heavy um, melee threat, and you're looking at approximately 250 to 300 points, plus you add on a 175 to 200 point HQ, well, you're looking at 500 points total right there. Now, you're probably looking at some sort of transport in some way, unless you have another way of getting them around the board. Again, this is army dependent, but you can quite easily end up with a unit that costs over 500 points. One of the units that I love, but is not real great to run in my iron hands, is a full squad of, well, I guess it's only nine Gorgon Terminators and a Chaplain um, in a Spartan. And that, all of that together ends up being a thousand points. Now, it's pretty clear to see why I don't always like to bring that in a list. One, a thousand points is a ton of points to put into one tank. Two, the Gorgon Terminators and Terminators in general, because as we've talked about many times before, the ones that aren't weapon skill five suffer serious, serious, serious problems. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's almost never going to be a unit that makes back its cost. The models look fantastic, and I really enjoy using them, so that's cool, but it's not something that is going to be cost-effective. I think if you try to look at any squad, and you were, in fact, able to uh, keep something to the points of about 300 points or so, then that is, I mean, it's a lot of points for a squad, but still, if you consider that you're looking at a 3,000 points, um, there is something really interesting about the idea of putting a top-end cap on spending those points. So let's take a look at comparatively how many points other squads are, and maybe that can give us a sort of a baseline to try to think about and answer this question. So let's start simple with something that almost everyone is going to have, probably in abundance, or at least the possibility for that, which is the tactical squad. So if you take the base squad of 10 Marines, you don't add anything to it, 
you upgrade your sergeant with artificer armor and a weapon of some kind, and then you give them a transport, a rhino. Now, I have said before, and I, I still feel pretty confident about this, that if you're going to take a rhino, taking a multi-melta on top seems to be a pretty easy choice to make, even though the multi-melta is itself almost as much as the whole rest of the rhino. But regardless, a rhino transport with a dozer blade and a multi-melta is 70 points. The rest of the marines there, the whole thing, is, and if you give chain bayonets to the marines, because, I, I, you know what, for me... For my sake, I don't like not equipping them with some kind of close combat weapon, even though if you do the math, it's not really all that great. You're looking at 213 points, and that's for a 10-man tactical squad. It does not necessarily have very much offensive capability. Um, it's 10 ablative wounds. There is no invuln save, whatever. But, you know, it does score. It does move quickly. It does have an anti-tank or anti-dread threat attached to it in the pintle-mounted melta-melta. So 213 points right there for those 10 guys. It's not nothing. Now, that 10-man squad, while I have, like I said, it's, there's not a ton of offensive capability, there are a lot of things that that squad can do. It can take ground. It can be a speed bump for other things. It can screen. It can be a distraction requiring answering because of scoring and objectives or, or whatever else. It does a lot. So 213 points for that squad and the ability um, that comes with it is a pretty cost-effective sort of thing to add on. Is it too much to spend? No, I don't think so at all. I think that's a really, really well-costed sort of addition to almost any army. You can drop 70 points off this if you just need a few squads of tactical marines to stand in front of, let's say, a gun line or a tank line, or if uh, you know, you're just going to try to run into the middle of the field and take objectives. So there's ways to make it even cheaper and have it do what basically you want it to do. But for my money, the Rhino is a pretty good investment. Now, let's say that you are instead looking for a different kind of staple in your list. Let's say you're going for something with a little bit lower profile, like a recon squad. Now, these guys are support squads, but they do still have line. For 155 points, you can have five of them. All of them have nemesis bolters to snipe. One of them has an augury scanner. A sergeant who has a power weapon, just because I like I like giving weapons to sergeants. And, I mean, 155 points for five of them. The augury scanner is going to allow you to intercept and give you a chance to pin something, whatever else. So this is only a little bit less than the tactical squad. It's significantly less wounds. It does not have the mobility. However, the 72-inch range of the sniper is really the thing that makes it still have an effective reach. So is this a really good unit? Yeah, I mean, it's a super great unit. It's not going to win games on its own. It's super cost-effective. It can stand on objectives. It can infiltrate all those sorts of things. Now, I could go through and talk about the other line choices to continue this comparison. And honestly, but I'd really like to hear from other people. I have not, as of yet, seen a great reason to run to spoilers in any list uh, other than perhaps, well, I mean, okay, world leaders are different. But for most of the time, I think tacticals are better, in my general opinion. At least that was the case before the release of Siege of Chthonia a couple weeks ago, which really upends this entire discussion and creates a whole bunch of new outliers. Interestingly enough, or maybe I should say specifically, though, all of those are one-ofs for legions. So the, the rule across the board Despoilers, absent some upgrades from the Siege of Chthonia or some other things, they just don't seem to do a lot of work. Um, but anyway, back to the main point, um, because they're a little bit more defensive, they're good at standing on objectives, whatever, so I'm not going to bother pricing out despoiler squads or assault squads. But anyway, regardless, you can get the idea of those points. 
Roughly 200 points for a troop choice which can score is a good amount of points to spend. So let's compare it to something that, you know, we would consider more expensive or more dangerous or more whatever and see how well we think the whole thing fits. So I just happened to be scrolling through lists that I haven't used and I came across a Firewing draft that I had been trying to make work and failing. And it's sort of an abandoned project for me right now. I, I hope to get back to it sometime, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But regardless, one thing that does work in the Dark Angels lists that I've been running are the Dark Deathwing Companions, which are absolutely amazing bodyguards, um, melee assisters, that sort of thing. So for 310 points, I've got a Deathwing Companion detachment here that has seven bodies. Um, it has one, two, three, four, five, ca- uh, five trained at greatswords. And, you know, uh, a power, uh, two, two guys with the shield so that you can have the special and vulnerable save and also lower the initiative of something striking against it. And with all of that, um, this squad, for example, if it goes up against a tactical squad, there's really no chance the tactical squad is going to be absolutely butchered. Okay. Now, the question becomes about efficiency or whatever else, because this is a 300-point squad going up against a squad which, without its transport, is only worth about 150 points. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, is, is this too many points to be spending on something that can only can kill, like, one tactical squad? Well, you want this squad to go up against another HQ choice another worthy expenditure of something to slaughter it, kill it, and earn its points back in that regard. And these guys are specifically designed to bodyguard characters, so the 300 points is a little bit less because it's going to be attached to your warlord or whatever else. The point I'm trying to make here is that if there is a sweet spot with this sort of thing, you have to ask yourself realistically, how many points can this unit pull, distract, destroy, or deter for like one or two turns. So in the ter- in the case of a tactical squad, it's not going to stand up to any amount of extreme firepower, but it is going to pull attention, you know, aggression from your opponent and require some sort of answer. So if the squad is just designed to tar pit, distract, help score, and dis- and discourage, you know, any sort of focus on other things, then you know, cheap is good. If you start spending too many points on one squad, though, it becomes impossible for it to make back its points. Consider the fact that if you spend roughly 300 points on six or seven different units, then probably if you can make sure that those individual units are credible or decent obnoxious threats on their own, then you will create an army that is just too difficult for your opponent to grapple with all at once. So there's different ways to sort of think about army building. To get way, way back to the premise of the whole question, okay, I don't know that there is a top end of too many points to spend on a unit, but basically what I would say is that considering you need to be able to have multiple threats on the table so your opponent can't just avoid, distract, tar pit, disengage from your expensive unit, I think if you spend more than 500 points on a single unit, then that unit needs to have a way to remain or force itself to be relevant or dealt with for the rest of the game. Otherwise, um, you know, you're going to spend a lot of points on something that can be distracted, taken out of the game, and then effectively you are going to lack the other kind of resources that you need to do stuff elsewhere. This has been one of my problems with um, heavy troops, cataphracti armor, 
and uh, Spartans, quite honestly, um, throughout this edition and honestly last edition as well. So many times I would see people use the Spartan to drop a big load of something someplace. And it's essentially, if you aren't able to take territory that is going to need to be retaken, right? If you're not able to put yourself into a position where you must be dealt with with that, with that anvil unit, then your opponent will simply leave and go someplace else and gather points or value from other places on the battlefield. And you will essentially have, through your own battle choices, negated your ability to interact with the field. There's also the narrative sort of aspect to filter in here. And I mean, I don't know. It, it feels to me like I never really read a story where the HQ, the main character, whatever, isn't surrounded by a team of, you know, dudes that are, you know, also similarly special in some regard. So having a command squad or having a kitted out sort of uh, small Death Star of about a 500 points it seems to make sense to me, and it feels right, considering that, you know, I mean, most of the time, that's the unit that I want to throw against my friends. Similar list. But that's sort of the meta that I play in, where we kind of like those clashes. Like, it's sort of expected that the warlords are probably going to get a chance to meet at some point and duke it out. It just seems like the thing. Now, your mileage might vary, and maybe you've got a meta where that's not the case. Maybe people don't run those units, whatever. I think if you run one unit like that, I think you're fine. But it really kind of depends on what else you're usually seeing. I would suggest no more than one unit of about a 500 points or maybe more. And then the more you can units that you can get into that 200 or 300 point sort of range, probably the better for just like your overall ability to interact with the field in a lot of different ways. Make sure you're not trying to bring anything that is too absolutely broken. And, uh, you know, m also, most importantly, by keeping your point costs down. You can also add in interesting one-ofs or sort of unique additional units that are just going to make your army look more interesting from a variety standpoint. So is there an 100% correct answer? No. Different armies are going to have slightly different builds in that regard. I myself would say anything more than like 600 points. And I, I mean, while this does include Primarchs, you might want to play with Primarchs anyway, but it, it definitely does include Lords of War. Fitting one of those into the list really makes it difficult to fit in a lot of other things. So you kind of only get to choose like one big toy, and then the rest you kind of have to build for uh, necessity. But that's up to you. What do you like to see? What kind of variety do you like to have? Do you really like the idea of like one big thing rumbling down the field? Is it really unfortunate that my Mastodon will probably only ever see the field in Apocalypse games because 700 points for a bus is just too much? I don't know, but you get the idea. All right, I've got one more question before I want to get into the main features, and this is an important one. So we are now um, a little over a year into Horus Heresy 2.0, and people have been building things, trying things. And I think, by and large, you know, uh, people have an idea of what is good, what isn't, what should probably be fixed, and whatever. And that's all fine and well. Theoretically, hold on. Is there anything? Yeah, hold on. Just knocked on wood about the Demons release that's supposed to be here any day now. But anyway, regardless. Um, you know, we, we're getting new. We've got Militia now. We've got Solar Ox, um, Sisters of Silence, uh, Mechanicum custodes and then of course all the marines so we got a lot of stuff to play with and and variety of stuff oh knights can't forget knights uh as you as your games continue to grow you're gonna see more growing pains and so i got this question from my buddy chris and um a friend josh and they both had a really good question which is what do you do about growing your local club 
particularly growing it in the right direction. Chris talked about the fact that there is a local idea about how the game should be played and that people are, what's the best way to say this? Lists are getting harder and harder, tougher and tougher, and that people are bringing lists just designed to maximize offensive capability. Um, what do you do when your community is getting whack? So we all know this. Okay, that's not true. Let's not assume. Win at all costs is the whack mentality. And it just means that the whole function of the game is to win. Now, I've talked before about why that's not necessarily a great way to play. Horus Heresy, one of my main reasons to th that I think that is that I just don't think the game is designed with a tournament mindset in mind, and so there are not the kind of immediate balances and counterplays that you might find in other systems, because this is supposed to, I think, be a narrative game. So what would I do if my local meta was becoming too focused on winning, too unfriendly because of the aggressive nature of the lists we were showing up, to the point where new players would show up and have a bad experience at the table? Um, what would I do? Well, so I guess we're going to assume a couple things here. One is I guess I'm assuming that if I am a person who has enough respect in my community to have a voice that be heard, I would just try to talk to some of these players and and ask them, like, what is it that you want to get out of the game? And if, if, if I'm not, then maybe this is just a rhetorical question to pose to all of my listeners and everybody else. What is it that you want to get out of Horus Heresy? One of the best things that I did and have done and I've talked about it before, in the earlier part of the year, in the spring, I was playing games with Ben, Dark Apostle Ben, and we did our own little mini end of campaign for the Beta Garmin event, which we played at for Adepticon. And one of the things we did right at the end, for the last like two months, was the last game of Beta Garmin that we played before we went to Adepticon, we played a team's game with and against each other. We had been playing two armies each. Both of us were playing one Loyalist and one Trader Force, at least, and mixing it up and playing uh, the games and having a good time. When we decided to figure out which of those armies we took to Adepticon, um, we both brought both our Trader armies and our Loyalist armies, and we played, like I said, against ourselves. The experience was an absolute blast. It was really fun to talk through um, like the narrative of like what would go where we finished up grudge matches between characters. It was really, really great. The experience for both of us, I think, was very rewarding because it helped us to put a cap on our the narrative that we had created. Um, it was very fun and it helped us connect what we were doing to a larger sense of of the community through the, the cool stuff that Alex had done. Now, part of why we were able to do that is because, you know, we sat down months before and talked about what is it that we wanted out of this um, Push for Beta Garment event? What is it that we wanted to do to accomplish? And I suppose it's possible that wherever you are listening to this, you might find yourself in a meta that is particularly challenging, um, that is more difficult, where the community just in general has decided that they want to make a show of building tougher lists, providing deeper challenges for one another. But I think it's important to note that not every player is going to enjoy that. However, this question does bring up a point that I have been trying to make um, to a couple friends recently, which is the fact that the wargaming experience is relative and also determined by a lot of different things. So, like, 
there are new games that are coming out this summer, and I know a lot of like my friends that play Warhammer also play video games. Um, and so we talk a little bit about the games we're playing. I'm less of a gamer than I used to be by about a million percent. However, the experience that we all have while playing, let's say Diablo 4, which I am still playing, or what are people still playing? God, I got some old heads friends who are st- like, they still love Rocket League, okay? When they log into Rocket League or whatever else, that experience is set by the community that you're based in. And that community, that concept is largely controlled by the purveyors of the game and the way they build those things together. Wargaming is not like that. And it's very much more like Dungeons and Dragons or something where the types of concept, the way that we interact with our community, the types of games we play, the types of units, the types of missions, whatever, it is largely left up to us. So it's really important to think about what it is that we want to do and to steward that sort of thing towards some sort of, you know, specific goal in mind. I've got a friend named Jacob. Um, He's from the Accountability Buddies, and I haven't asked him if I can use this yet, so this might get cut entirely. Um, Jacob has had uh, very public conversations about the fact that he's super frustrated with 2.0 because the kinds of armies that he wants to build are just, they don't seem to be viable. They don't seem to work. They run into big problems. Um, And that can be super frustrating for him, and it's causing him no shortage of problems. I also get the sense from talking to him that um, it seems like maybe the meta that he plays in, in Indiana, is a much more aggressive meta than the one that basically I have helped create, or, you know, Ben and I, I guess, have helped create for each other and in our local environment. There are people in my area who play Heresy and are pretty aggressive about the way they build things and so when I play against that person I just know to bring a slightly tougher list that being said you know we would never let that person play a new player because we want them to stick around and play this is going to sound really lame and very much out me again as a teacher but I don't think it's unreasonable to have certain expectations like this in a club that, you know, we're going to play a casual game. Now, I mean, admittedly, this is the sort of thing you can talk to your opponent about beforehand, but some people just don't quite get it. Um, So, I mean, be direct. Feel free to be direct about this. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You're going to spend a lot of time and a fair amount of money on putting this thing together. And if, you know, we're... I'm assuming that most of my audience is adults uh, who have kids or are of that age. And, I mean, we don't have time to spend three hours every week um, wasting time. So if we have that opportunity to play the game and it ends up being terrible, that definitely does impact the future of the game. I think that this game works better when we try to think about the experience of our opponent across from us. Because if we're not going to do that, I don't really see the point of it. There are other games that are better for a tournament experience if you want that. Um, but, but yeah. I mean, I recently had a guy who I was just getting to know. He, I mean, you know, I, we would talk about gaming, and he would just tell me constantly about all the people he had tabled or beaten. And, and, and here's the thing. From my perspective, I don't care. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> don't tell me about those things. Uh, 
don't brag to me about those things because if you were more focused on that, then I, I doubt you were focused on the narrative. Um, and that's what this game is supposed to be. I don't ever want to suggest people to give up uh, on trying to make their club or their whatever work, but like you also don't have to put up with um, super competitive nonsense. And there's nothing wrong with looking at something, especially if it's somebody that you've talked to before and saying, I'm, I'm not going to play that today, right? I'm not going to play your seven contemptors list. I mean, it's just not, it's not necessarily fun. It doesn't make for the game. It doesn't make for an enjoyable game for everyone. Now, part of that then is understanding that there are certain parameters that you should have when building lists. These obviously aren't things you can get everyone to agree to, but like, it's something that I can establish for myself and I can explain to my opponents, which is a pretty decent segue into our very last installment of our visit to Zach's Pile of Opportunity. So it has been a long, long while, but we are finishing up part three, um, taking a look at all the models that Zach has and looking at all the different ways that he might choose to build them for the Imperial Fists. In previous episodes, we have taken a look at the Hammerfall Strike Force and the Stone Gauntlet, um, of which I said before, I know that the Stone Gauntlet is extremely powerful, I personally just like the Hammerfall Strike Force better. I think it's more, I think it would be more fun for me and maybe for my opponent. But regardless, the last one is the Templar Assault, and it is keyed a little bit around everyone's favorite or least favorite character in the, well, I guess he can't be least favorite as long as Erebus exists, but if you've played against him, you know that Sigismund is a bit of a bear. Um, he was more so in last edition, he still is this edition, but we're going to talk about ways to Build this list and what you should do about it. So anyway, the Rite of War Templar Assault. So the effects of this Rite of War are that the Templar Brethren, which are a unique squad for the Imperial Fists, they can be taken as troop choices in this detachment with this Rite of War. All models in a Templar Brethren unit taken as part of this detachment with the Rite of War here gain Heart of the Legion and Line, which is, which is really cool. Line especially, but Heart of the Legion is good too. For the duration of any turn in which a unit of Templar Brethren taken as a part of the detachment using this Rite of War disembark from a model, all models in the disembarking unit gain Rage 2. This does not count if uh, there's an emergency de uh, disembarkation. Rage 2. That's two additional charge or attacks on the charge. That's, that's really good. So the limitations is that you have to take the Templar Brethren to fill all the compulsory choices, which is a similar theme for the Imperial Fists. This right of war can only be taken for a detachment with the Loyalist Legion. All detachments in an army that include this detachment must have a version of the Legionis Astartes X special rule, meaning that you have to be not only Loyalist, but you can't ally this detachment with, like, non-Astartes. So no militia, no solar ox, no custodes, no sisters of silence, which is interesting. On top of that, the detachment using this right of war cannot take more elites and fast attack choices in total that they have troop choices in the detachment in total. So, for example, if you have three troop choices, you can have up to three fast attack and elites choices combined. This is a tough deterrent here. Although it doesn't touch heavy support, so you can still take all your full three heavy support choices without any concern, which is good. But it does mean that you are going to have to, for example, it's going to be harder to load up on Contemptors a little bit anyway, um, because you've got to have 
more or equal to the number of true choices you have. So that's that's interesting. That's good. I like that. So we should talk a little bit right away about the Templar Brethren because they are the cornerstone of what this rite of war is built around. So the Templar Brethren are 150 points for five models. They have movements, seven, weapon skill, five, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, four, base of two wounds, initiative, four, two attacks, base, leadership, eight, and a two plus save. They do have artificer armor. They've got power swords, base, uh, bolt pistols, frag grenades, and crack grenades. They have special rules in addition to Legionus Astartes. They have Furious Charge 1 and Crusader. So they're already incentivized to charge because of Furious Charge. P putting them in this Rite of War gives you Rage 2, so you're just kind of doubling up on that bonus. They can take a dedicated transport, either a Rhino or a Land Raider, which, well... You're going to want to put them in Land Raiders. The reason why is because, especially if you're doing the Templar Brethren Rite of War, putting them in Land Raiders allows them to actually use the Rage 2 that you get from this Rite of War because you're going to want to charge as they disembark from the, uh, from the thing and then, you know, do, do the charging, get the extra stuff. So these boys are not cheap. Um, 25 points a model. And you can, uh, after the 150, you can take up to five more. The entire unit can have Melt-A-Bombs for only 25 points a model. So it's a stat, uh, flat stack. So like if you get up to 10, an additional 25. So it's cheaper than 5 points a model if you get 10. Any model can take a combat shield for 2 points to get some kind of invulnerable save. Any model can exchange a bolt pistol for a plasma pistol for 10 points. One can take a Nuncio Vox. One can take a Vexilla, both for 10 points, notably no Auspex. The champion can exchange the power sword for a power fist for five, a solarite power gauntlet for 10, or a thunder hammer for 10. For my money, probably a thunder hammer, and almost a guarantee just because that is the only melee upgrade available to this squad. Um, everybody else is just stuck with power swords, which are fine, but not, not fantastic, especially against armor value or two plus models. The champion can also take an architect pistol for five points, or upgrade one of their weapons to become Master Crafted for 10. So, two wounds base, uh, weapon skill 5, and a 2 plus save. 25 points a model for these is really, I mean, it's, it's a lot of points, but it's really not that terrible. The biggest thing is they do have a lack of invulnerable save, so they will be, you know, dying pretty easily to other power weapons that have AP2. But what's interesting, because they all have those power swords they will be striking at initiative with their weapons with a chance to rend on a six and like i said this right of war does incentivize charging out of vehicles and charging out of those vehicles um, gives you that rage too so one of these models a standard templar brethren has a base two attacks charging gets you four because of rage two and five up to five because of two weapons so one of these guys, uh, five attacks. That's a lot of attacks. So you are going to be throwing a lot of dice to help you fish for those sixes to get wrens. It's pretty great. On top of that, Furious Charge means that you are going to be wounding slightly more often. And this has the ever-important weapon skill five. So at the very least against other elite units, you might have a hard time killing because you, don't, you lack the AP, but you've got the weapon skill on the right side so that you can actually make that happen. Now, on top of that, in this Rite of War, this squad is also going to gain 
Heart of the Legion, so a 6-plus invulnerable save if they're within 6 inches of, inches of an objective, and also Stubborn, which will help them stick around in the middle of the board when you need them to. Um, and on also, and that's going to be really, really important as well. Um, they're going to be scoring units. You can dump them out of a land raider, charge something, tear it up, and hold the line with them. A combat shield for two points apiece actually is kind of compelling. Um, you know, if you had 10 of these, it's 20 points to give yourself a six plus invulnerable save, which isn't like fantastic, but it's really for, for what it is for a six plus invulnerable save. It's a very small amount of points for a 25 point a piece model. So it might be worth considering depending on what your points are at. I'm not sure that I would buy them plasma pistols, although you could, but they're already pretty expensive as is. I would think uh, Thunderhammer. I would think Thunderhammer on the champion, maybe Mastercraft it if I was feeling, Kate, feeling crazy, and then uh, combat shields. When you add all that up, when you get 10 models with combat shields, um, champion has a Thunderhammer, and then the, the land raider that you're going to want to put them in, it, it gets expensive. We are not talking about a 550 point unit. Now, obviously, this is going to be a lot of points, um, but it is pretty darn uh, powerful points coming out of an assault vehicle. They're protected by a 14 armor cocoon. Maybe you think about putting an apothecary in there with them as well, but that just really jacks up the points. I could see myself building two squads of these at most and putting them both in land raiders and then having a really really scary middle of the board threat against basic infantry and some of the sort of death stars that you might see as long as you had some support from some place that also is going to have something to deal with terminators with four plus invulnerable saves or the like now if i take two of these squads for 550 points and then i have a um 1900 points left in my list then i can go ahead and bring like a couple blocks of 200 tactical squads despoiler squads if i really want to although i'd probably just bring tactical squads put those in rhinos to come alongside so i basically have an armored front that's advancing here then if i can get myself up to like say four troop choices then I can feel like bringing one, an apothecary detachment, um, so that I can take a couple of apothecaries to go with these Templar, and then two, maybe a couple of Contemptor Dreadnoughts. I think that's going to be really important in a list like this because the Templar are really awesome and really killy, but they're going to struggle against AP2. So if you can have a Contemptor Dreadnought jogging alongside the Land Raider to sort of support that, then you're looking at an unbelievably effective uh, combat force. On top of that, Zach, I probably would also bring the standard autocannon uh, heavy weapon support squad that you've already been using because I think it's super thematic, super fluffy, gives you even more scoring troop choices to work with and, um, you know, whatever else you want to fill out the heavy support slots with. Reminder that you're going to have two land raiders in this army already, so you already have some heavy armor and some las cannons on the board, plus that with the contemptors. Um, you're looking at roughly 1,500 points of very killy stuff right there before you get into whatever else you're going to do with the troops and, and whatnot. Now, what's interesting about this list, this right of war specifically, we have a similar sort of situation to what I talked about last time with the Stone Gauntlet, which is there is a, a character that you would sort of associate with this, and the character has almost a little bit of anti-synergy with um, 
with the right of war. So, okay, let's talk Sigismund. Um, 230 points for Sigismund. He is the first captain and the martial champion. He ends up becoming the first master of the Black Templars. Spoiler. He has um, movement 7, weapon skill 7, ballistic skill 4, strength 4, toughness 4, 4 wounds, initiative 5, 4 attacks, strength or leadership 10, and a 2 plus save. As far as his gear, he's got artificer armor, an iron halo, the black sword, a master crafted bolt pistol, because of course, why not, and frag and crack grenades. He's got so many special rules. Imperial Fists, of course, independent character, and Master of the Legion, as you would expect. He is also fearless. He has Adamantium Will, 3+. has some of his special unique rules. He has the Dolores Fighter, Death's Champion, a 3-plus Precision Strikes, which is crazy. He is a Loyalist. His Warlord trait is Slayer of Kings, and oh... I forgot to mention he also has Eternal Warrior. That is maybe the thing that makes people complain or groan about him the most because he's so killy and then he can't be just squished back. But anyway, let's talk about his Warlord trait. Um, he has the Slayer of Kings, and it's it's pretty good. Um, it's not like mind-blowing or whatever, but Slayer of Kings says that if Sigismund slays the enemy's Warlord in a challenge, you gain one victory point. And on top of that... Um, everyone gets a plus one to the total number of wounds caused in each combat for the purpose of determining results. In addition, you get an additional reaction in your opponent's movement phase, which is interesting. Um, would have thought it would be an assault phase thing, but movement phase is interesting for this. Now, in this right of war, I mean, we're not necessarily going to have tons of extra stuff that can react like for Interceptor or whatever else, but... Being able to advance, being able to withdraw, be really effective for the kind of rush up there sort of thing that we have in mind. Now, he also has the rule Death's Champion, which it says that Sigismund and any unit he joins gain a plus two to all charge distances and sweep advance rolls made for the unit in additional. In addition, if Sigismund is present in any detachment, then that detachment can take Templar Brethren squads as troop choices. So as noted, um, one of the things that's interesting about Sigismund is that um, he gains the ability to take Templar as troops no matter what, but only this right of war gets lines. So there is a little bit of a double dip here, which is fine. One of the things that's interesting about Sigismund is that you can take Templar in any right of war for the Imperial Fists and still get that troop bonus, which is great. Um, but it, it's a little bit of an overlap, which, again, that's fine. Finally, he has... The uh, Dolores Fighter special rule, which says when a challenge is issued in any combat that includes Sigismund, Sigismund must always accept that challenge with Sigismund. If the opposing player does not issue a challenge, then Sigismund must do so and must nominate Sigismund to fight in the challenge. Additionally, when fighting in a challenge, uh, invulnerable saves taken against Sigismund's attacks must be re-rolled. So this, this combined with a couple of other things means that Sigismund is an absolute terror in close combat. We should talk also about the fact that his black sword, his weapon, is a plus two strength AP2, melee two-handed, master crafted, and instant death weapon. So he's instant death on the attacks. He has eternal warrior, and he is immune to instant death back. And if you are fighting against him, you have to reroll successful invulnerable saves. Now, with weapon skill seven, he is the same weapon skill as some Primarchs. And because he has Eternal Warrior, he actually has a chance of holding a Primarch in close combat. Now, 
not like a lot of them necessarily, but it's pretty wild how just how effective he can in fact be. One thing that's interesting because of the way ch- because of the way challenges have been changed this edition, he actually has gotten a slight nerf in the fact that because what used to happen is because he's got instant death on his weapon, he would challenge, he would go in, he would kill whatever, you know, mope you put him against. And then the rest of his attacks would spill into the rest of the squad and instant kill those people as well. Thankfully, when Sigismund murders your sergeant 14 different times, now it just counts as a plus 14 for your for your combat resolution. Now, that's a bit of a problem because um, it might not matter a ton of difference because with Death's Champion, Sigismund is getting a plus two on his sweeping advance rolls to kill you. So... If you lose this combat against Sigismund, he might just sweep you even if he doesn't use his challenge ability to just murder you. The point is that he is he's an absolute beast. It makes sense to have him at the head of a Templar Brethren list. He would be effective. You could just throw him in with a squad of Templar Brethren in this list or in any other list. Let's say you just want to include him in something else. I also think it would be really cool just to put him in a squad of Templar Brethren and then maybe he's not even the warlord. Like, let's say you have Dorn on the table or something. Or you could include Sigismund with a squad of Templar in a land raider as just sort of a package that you include in like a stone gauntlet list or something like that. That might be a little bit silly, but, you know, Fafnir ran and Sigismund bro tapping it up uh, does make quite a lot of sense, I guess, from the lore, if nothing else. Now, if I was going to go through and rank these, like I said, I think that I think that all of these are great rights of war. They're fluffy. They have, I mean, I can imagine how they would play on the board and they seem like they would be fun. They all play slightly different. Stone Gauntlet is going to be much of a stand, wait, and hold sort of thing. Hammerfall is, of course, really, really leaning on that deep strike, really thinking about that teleport strike. And Templar Assault here is very much a guys in tanks charging up the board, running out and taking territory. Really fun no matter how you do it. There are special characters all over the place that really could be fun for you to play with, Zach. Ultimately, I think you've lucked out with the huge pile of models that you have because you could make three very different armies that play really different, that use the same rules, and are really fun and fluffy. So anyway, thanks, Zach, for giving us the opportunity to talk about his army, um, to talk about the different things and chances, stuff that he could do about it uh, and with it. And, um, yeah, look forward to more of this in the future. On the next episode, I'm going to talk about the massive collection of my friend John from the Accountability Buddies podcast, who has a whole crapload of extra stuff he wants to put in his Ultramarines. And we'll start talking a little bit about Ultramarines. If you have a pile of opportunity that you would like to be talked about on Ineptus to start is please reach out to me because I, I don't know how I feel about doing two loyalists in a row. It makes me feel kind of dirty. So go ahead and reach out. I would love to have you featured on another episode later on down the road. So now to finish things up for the episode, I'm going to talk about a couple of more heavy support choices. In particular, I want to talk about two tanks that are in the core book for heavy support, both sort of filling uh, similar roles as far as they are both artillery-style tanks, and that would be the Scorpius and the Arquiter. So we're going to start with the Scorpius. It's the older of the two, and they were very popular last edition, and I think they're still going to be pretty popular here. 
The Legion Scorpius Squadron is 120 points, movement 12, ballistic skill 4. It's got the same chassis as everything else does as far as Predators, I'm sorry. 13, 12, and 10 on the front side and rear, and 4 hull points. It has 1 as the unit size, and you can take 1 additional in the same squadron for 105 points additional. And you have the turret-mounted Scorpion Missile Launcher, you have the pencil-mounted Twin Link Bolter, and you have Smoke Launchers. And you do, of course, get the Legionis Astartes X Special Rule. You can take an additional pencil-mounted weapon if you so wish. I typically don't, but my friend Ben always spends five points for that pencil-mounted Heavy Flamer when he's playing as the Salamanders, which has done... Well, it's I've talked about it before. It's funny. In addition, for five points, you can have a hull-mounted killer Hunter-Killer Missile, which I don't necessarily recommend, a Dozer Blade for five points, or Searchlights for five points. Dozer Blade, I would consider if you think you're going to have to remove or move this thing, if you're going to try to run it away from something that's coming at it, but otherwise, I don't think any of these are um, must-haves for this tank, and we'll talk about why right now. So the main thing about this uh, tank is the Scorpius Missile Launcher, and it is a 48-inch range, Strength 8, AP 4, Heavy 1, Barrage, Large Blast 5 inches, and it, I'd like to point out that uh, Large Blast 5 inches are harder to get than they used to be, so that's great. And it also has the Rocket Barrage special rule. Rocket Barrage says that if a model with this weapon, with a weapon with this special rule, does not move in the movement phase, the weapon gains the Rending 4+, plus and Pinning special rules. So your Strength 8 AP4 weapon gains rending four plus and pinning which is pretty great for an anti-inventory option now it used to be ap3 so you're not auto squatting marines anymore but ap2 or i'm sorry rending means that you're potentially uh killing terminators or things in artificer armor which is pretty awesome and the pinning also is just sort of an added bonus it's already pretty great and actually and i think about it something i totally forgot in my last game so Barrage is a special rule that says that uh, basically you're using your blast markers and whatever else, but Barrage weapons can fire indirectly. This means that you can hide your Scorpius behind a large building where it wouldn't normally have line of sight, and it can still shoot at stuff. Now the big thing is that when they don't have line of sight, as long as the target is beyond their minimum range, um, you can fire. But the biggest thing is that you do not subtract your ballistic skill from the scatter like you would normally. So one of the things you're going to really want is to make sure that you have a Nuncio Vox because Nuncio Vox allows you to reroll the scatter. Um, so like putting a Nuncio Vox on one or two tactical squads becomes a really uh, smart thing to do. On top of the fact that a Scorpius with the ability to rend becomes really effective at killing infantry, having the rending trigger on a four when you're talking about a weapon that is strength eight means that you can also take little hull points off of armor value 14 tanks and whatever i mean much more easily than you would think otherwise on a four plus you're triggering that d3 additional armor penetration so you've got a much more likely chance to actually do a little bit of extra damage here there or the other place this is really interesting to me because last edition it was sort of a well-known thing that the scorpius was an extremely powerful uh, tank really effective at anti-infantry um, and perhaps too cheaply costed. It still is. It still is very cheap, and 
it's still really effective. It's gotten a little bit less effective, but again, there's been a little bit of trade, as I mentioned. But it's just interesting because so much other inf- or, uh, so much other anti-infantry with uh, artillery such things ha- got nerfed pretty badly. It's interesting that this one survived. So regardless, if you are looking for a cheap way to add a little bit of extra anti-infantry, provided you can also put in some Nuncio Voxes to try to help guide the thing along, I think this is definitely a fantastic addition. The Scorpius looks especially good once we compare it to, I mean, sort of a near equivalent, I guess, the Legion Arquiter, um, which is a vehicle that can also be squadroned. Um, its base value is, or its base cost is 200 points. It only has an 8-inch move. It has a 4-inch, or Ballistic Skill 4. It has uh, front and side 12 and rear 10. The vehicle type is Bombard, which does grant it some unique rules for its shooting ability. The Bombard subtype specifically says that when a model with this unit type moves at combat speed, it can fire any number of ordnance weapons and may also fire any non-ordnance weapons, normally ignoring the restrictions for combat speed. However, when at cruising speed, it may only fire a single defensive weapon. So it's not moving a ton, um, but it is moving. Now, keep in mind that when combat speed is half or less, this means that your vehicle, your Bombard, can move four inches and shoot everything. Um, Cruising speed means that eight inches. So you're really not going very far. Um, It's interesting. The Scorpius can move 12 inches, but uh, if it does it, it really loses the effectiveness of its gun. Um, This thing is not going to want to move. So the Arquiter comes stock with a central line mounted Morbus Bombard, two heavy bolters on the Sponsons, and smoke launchers. It also has the move through cover special rule, which is interesting, because although you're not moving very fast, you can move through cover without worrying about it. You have the ability to upgrade your Morbus Bombard to two different options, the Graviton Charge Cannon or the Spicula Rocket System. In addition to that, you can take your Sponson mounted weapons, Change them to Heavy Flamers for free, Auto Cannons for 10 points, Last Cannons for 15 points, Volkite Culverins for 10. Or you can have, you know, your standard uh, cost for the pencil-mounted weapons. In addition, you can take Searchlights, and you can take Hunter-Killer Missiles for the same cost as everything else. Okay, so let's talk about the different, um, let's talk about the different guns and weapons that you can use on this thing. So... First off, I should point out that there is one other type of weapon that you can use, which are Phosphex shells, but that is only if you have a Siege Breaker, which unlocks it for you. Um, the Arquiter Bombard shells are 24 inches. Um, the Arquiter, I'm sorry, the Arquitus Phosphex shells are 24 inches, Strength 5, AP 2, Ordnance 1, Blast 3 inches, Poison 3, 3 plus, Crawling Fire, and Lingering Death. Pretty cool. 24 inches is not a lot of distance, especially for a tank that can only move four inches and shoot. So it's not going to be doing a lot of um, absolutely crazy movement. So the main gun, what you start with is a the Morbus Bombard. It's a little bit better with a 36-inch range. It has a strength 10. It has AP4. It's Ordnance 1, Barrage, Large Blast 5+, Pinning, and Rending 6+. So strength 10 means that you're going to be wounding darn near pretty much everything on a two plus um uh, and it's you know the ability to rend means you can break through some armor but everything is going to get a save against it 
Um, pinning is great here. Large Blast is also pretty great. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not like, it's definitely not amazing. Now, the Graviton Charge Cannon is, um, it's actually kind of wild. So this is the other upgrade. There's one of the upgrades that they can get. It's an Ordnance 1, 24 inches, Barrage Concussive 1, Graviton Pulse and Haywire. What's really wild about this is that it has a massive blast of 7 inches. So... One of the things that I find really interesting about this, uh, first of all, when you're talking about a movement of four inches, firing this gun um, up to 24 and then it's scattering, um, it's going to potentially go some places. Uh, can it get back to you? If you fire to the maximum range, it can't come back to you. But if you're not careful, it might otherwise. Um, the Graviton Charge, what's really interesting for me is the seven inches of difficult terrain that you are leaving on the board. Um, after the fact with the Graviton Pulse. Now, seven inches means that you can throw it a lot of different places, and especially if you've got uh, an opponent who has a couple of vehicles bunched up together, it's really easy to hit more than one at a time. Haywire being what it is, on a two-plus, you're going to inflict some sort of hull point onto that vehicle, so this is definitely one not to sleep on for sure. Like I said, also really interesting against, you know, if you're, if you're facing against a friend who is going to be, who would be really annoyed by running everything through difficult terrain, you can make an absolutely huge part of the board difficult for your opponents to walk through. The last option is the Spicula Rocket System. This is Strength 7, AP 4, Ordnance 1, 72 inches range, Massive Blast, 7 inches, Rending 6+, plus, and Limited Ammunition. This one is interesting. It's Strength 7, AP 4, Rending 6+. Plus. Again, it's just not, you, you can't count on this to do a whole lot. Strength 7 isn't going to hurt much. Um, the Massive Blast is going to be a big shred of area, but AP 4 means that you are going to be damaging infantry pretty decently, but they're going to be getting saves. Um, this is probably my least favorite of the options just because it costs points and it also is just not that effective. The Spicula is 15 points and the Graviton Charge Cannon is 15 points. Of the two of them, I would take the Graviton Charge just for the humor of it, but it's not like all that terribly effective. Um, 215 points base for this gun and what we're really doing is just sort of messing with, with our opponent. We're not really causing a lot of huge offensive destruction. The Phosphex, if it were a large blast, would be really tempting on this, but with the small blast, and I, I mean, I guess I don't I don't necessarily see or rate that so much either. And it's still a 20-point upgrade to get that Phosphex, so it's getting, again, pretty expensive. Of the two of them, I think that the Scorpius has the clear advantage, just because it is almost 50% of the points, and it does have the ability to kill infantry, it does have the ability to hull point tanks and that sort of thing. Now, does that mean I don't think you take the arc hitter? No, no, absolutely not. The tank model is absolutely sweet. And like I said, I can see some really interesting combinations and ideas behind that Graviton charge system. Simply the ability to shut down a lane of traffic or really limit my opponent's ability to move just a little bit. I mean, that's a lot of dangerous terrain tests, <laughs> which is also pretty funny to think about. So as far as I'm concerned, there are some other things to talk about in the heavy support choices. Um, I could talk about the Fire Raptor more specifically. I don't think I'm going to, though. And I think I'm going to consider this segment of the show finished. Um, we've talked about the Dreadnoughts. We've talked about the Predator. 
We talked a little bit about the Sakaran in a couple of other different places, and now it's time to move on to something else. So I'm curious, what other things would you like me to look into? Would you like me to talk more about the elites? Would you like me to talk about fast attack choices? Talk about speeders, something else? Go ahead and drop me a line at ineptusistartist 30 k with any of your suggestions or ideas, and I'd love to hear from you. Okay, that about does it for now. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate your continued support, even with the long breaks. I've been trying to put stuff out on YouTube a little bit, but I haven't done an official episode in a while, so this feels good to come back to the standard format a little bit, which and this will be posted on both YouTube and on Blueberry in the standard places and wherever you can normally get your podcasts. I actually want to take a second here as the close of this episode to uh, point something out. While there has been a big break here, we have now rounded out tw- uh, 12 months of an Eptis Astartes. It was, well, I guess 13 months. I've been doing this now for a year, and I want to just say how grateful I am and thankful for I am for all of the support. I haven't done a main episode in a while. I have done a couple of videos on YouTube, and they were received really well. Uh, one of our videos about uh, the inducti got almost, well, I think 1,500 views on YouTube, which was just, uh, it was really awesome. Um, I really am enjoying doing this content for you, and I hope to continue it for another year. Um, so let's keep this going. Uh, I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. If you're seeing this on YouTube, please like and subscribe if you are downloading this on Blueberry or on Apple Podcasts or something. Thank you so much. You could also go to YouTube and like and subscribe if you'd like. Take care of yourselves. Email me any questions at ineptusasartist30k at gmail.com or comment on YouTube, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks so much. Take care of yourselves.